You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode four. Today, we're asking the question, what is the relationship between trust and safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? The question for this episode is, What's the relationship between trust and safety? And specifically, we want to know whether trust is overall a good thing or a bad thing for safety. And as we're going to find out, that's not obvious. And it's a more complicated question than it sounds, just because trust itself is really quite a complicated thing to define. A lot of people, including some pretty big name safety experts, throw around the word trust as if it's an obvious part of safety culture and obviously a good thing. So, for example, James Reason said that if workers trust their organisation, they're more likely to communicate openly about safety. George Watson said that if workers trust their supervisors, that will give them a positive perception of workplace safety and they'll behave better. Other researchers have said that if workers trust each other, that creates a good shared safety climate and that's good for safety. There's work that says that trust or the lack of trust affects whether a safety initiative is likely to be successful or not. If workers don't trust the motives of their managers, then safety improvement initiatives aren't likely to succeed. But all of that just sort of treats trust as this obvious thing. And that's only part of the story. And that's what we're gonna look at in the two papers I've chosen to look at in this this episode. Uh, Both papers we're looking at come from the same researcher, Uh, Dr. Stacey Conchi. I always like to have a look at a quick look at just who the authors are when we look at a paper. Um, This isn't an argument from authority thing. It's more a question of, well, trust. Um, If someone publishes a lot of papers on the same topic, and if they've got a reasonable spread of different research methods and different journals, then it's fairly safe to assume that they're an expert. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean that you take for granted everything that they say, but it just means they get the benefit of the doubt when they talk about things like what the literature says or what's the consensus in the field. If they've been peer-reviewed in a lot of different places, then I'm pretty confident that they're not misrepresenting what the overall field thinks. And one particular thing I look for is how connected a researcher is to both safety and to their parent discipline. Most topics in safety are really specialised subtopics of other disciplines such as psychology or organisational studies. And it gives me confidence if someone is talking about something like trust, which is a psychological concept, that they've been published not just in safety, but in respected psychological journals as well. So starting point, Dr. Conchi is a psychologist. She's an expert in trust. And she's got a particular interest in how you apply the idea of trust to high risk and high reliability work. Um, The paper we're going to look at is published in the journal Safety Science in 2007. It's called The Functions and Development of Safety-Specific Trust and Distrust. Um, The paper's a bit of a mix. It's sort of half literature review 
and half of analysis of some interviews with offshore oil and gas workers, and then a discussion which blends the existing literature with what they found in the interviews. Um, the authors for this paper are Stacey Conchie and Ian Donald. Dave, you've done a bit of this sort of combination of literature review to get the foundations and then interview work for a specific example. Can you say a little bit about what that's like as a researcher to do and to publish? Yeah, Drew, these are really interesting projects and I, I think you come at, one at, come at it one of two ways. You you either read something in the literature that you you then raises all sorts of questions in your own mind about the specific context or application of, of those ideas in maybe in a slightly different way or a different domain. So then you take, you know, what you what you've got out of out of the literature and then try to um, conduct some interviews and research to to expand or clarify or or to help explain what what you've read. And I've also been involved in studies that have come up the other day where the other way where have done the interviews first and found some really interesting things and then you try to actually figure out where in the literature there's frameworks or explanations or or theory to match what you've what you've found in your data so this data theory match can kind of happen before or after and i i think it's really it makes for a really uh, useful and interesting paper when there's a really strong literature review component combined with a specific research component. Um, they're, they're good papers to read, and I think they're really useful papers like, like this one. Yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed reading it, and I learned some stuff myself. The, the first, this isn't really a conclusion of the paper. They treated it as something that was fairly obvious and well-known in psychology, but was new to me, is the idea that trust and distrust aren't just opposites of each other. It's not that your trust goes up and distrust goes down, or distrust goes up and trust goes down. The absence of trust isn't distrust, it's just a sort of neutral willing to be convinced. So if someone doesn't trust you, that's okay, because they can learn to trust you. Whereas if someone distrusts you, that's a quite different thing. They're, they're, you get into this cycle where that because they distrust you, they behave like they distrust you, you distrust them. So when psychologists measure trust, they don't just measure it as this like linear scale. They measure different aspects of trust and different aspects of distrust. The second thing that comes more from the safety side of things is the idea that it's not as simple as trust is a good thing and distrust is a bad thing. Because when we don't fully trust people, that can lead to quite good behaviours. You don't trust someone, so you check up on them. And that's good for safety. Whereas when we trust people too much, we just take their word for things, even when maybe we shouldn't. Um, this was something that was mentioned by a few authors in safety before Stacey Conchie and Ian Donald did this work, but it hadn't really been explored. You know, for example, it's something that Hale mentions a few times in his work, but not as the direct topic of the research and not as something that's been well evidenced. So from the literature, this is something that they wanted to check out further. And that's why they moved from the literature review into this doing field work, in this case, interviews with oil and gas workers. And they reached the conclusion pretty quickly that the idea of distrust covers multiple things. There's a functional type of distrust where workers know that other humans are fallible, so they routinely check each other's work. And there's a great quote in the paper that comes from a supervisor. And he basically says that when he comes back from shore leave, he doesn't trust himself. And so he tells his own lads to keep an eye on him. And that kind of functional distrust is almost a positive thing. It's a kind of respect 
And it's very different from, say, workers being suspicious of the motives of their supervisors and their managers. And so the argument that Conchie and Donald make is that for safety, you need a moderate level of both trust and distrust, sort of a not too hot, not too cold, somewhere in the middle. Too much trust leads to a lack of personal responsibility and mistakes slipping through the cracks. Too much distrust leads to people behaving really badly towards each other and reduced attention to the core of the work. Whereas at the happy medium, you get the good sides of both. You get good communication and you get good checking behaviour. Yeah, I, I mean, I think trust is one of those things where it, it's very easy to take that oversimplified view that trust is good for safety and the more the better. And so like many things in safety, when, when we look into the details of it, it, it's far more nuanced and complex in that. So we need to understand trust, too much trust, too little trust, trust, distrust, too much, too little, different types of trust and different types of distrust to really to form a view of this. And for me, I, I, I recalled a paper that um, Carl Weick and his colleagues wrote titled Organization, Organizing for Collective Mindfulness. And they introduced this topic called organizations and people in organizations need to be emotionally ambivalent. And so what they meant was that organizations needed to have equal amounts of hope and fear. So they needed to have hope and faith and trust in what they and others were doing for safety was right and that they are on track, but also equal amounts of of fear and and I suppose a level of unease, if you like, that, you know, maybe they weren't doing everything completely right. So they had to continually scrutinize what it was they were doing. And I think these more balanced and nuanced views of the way that organizations need to think in relation to safety are much more useful than just polar opposite positions like chronic unease you know that's something that's never set never sat very well with me because it's very hard to be at one end of the of the spectrum all the time so i think while it while it feels a bit strange to say it in our modern organizations that always try to value you know the best of everything is that yes i, I think a level of distrust is is good for safety yeah one of the things that immediately leaps out to me is the idea of uh, things like safety cases which are almost deliberately set up to be a sort of adversarial system for safety. One person designs a system, they make an argument that it's safe, and someone else comes in quite aggressively as an independent assessor to try to check up on that. And it's a sort of weird thing where there's almost a collegial relationship between the independent assessor and the person they're assessing. At the same time, there's this process that works better if they do actually get a bit sceptical and they distrust. And you, people who've criticised that process say that the trouble is that there's too much of the friendly colleagues, too much of the taking people's words for it. And look, maybe maybe we've been seeing that recently with the Boeing 737 MAX, you know, software changes and 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 the regulatory oversight of that. And I think it's it's been shown before in the safety case environment that too much trust and um, and therefore not enough checking and challenging, you know, may lead to things being being overlooked or not managed as well as they could be. Yeah, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should deliberately start injecting distrust. You know, I wouldn't advocate that Boeing starts lying to the regulator to create a better distrustful relationship between them. No, and I think there we'll we'll talk a little bit later about um, functional and dysfunctional trust and functional and dysfunctional uh, distrust. And that's definitely dysfunctional distrust. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I like the sort of distinction that you, uh, 
I think when we were talking before, you were talking about playing the ball, not the person. Yeah, and I think we'll 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 get into that in the findings and and the practical uh, applications of the of the findings of these papers because I think there's some really really clear messages for how people um, you know think about trust in their organisations and particularly what I'm really um, keen about is the language that we use to describe certain things and the emotions that different types of language uh, creates in people within organisations. Yeah, um, so, so some interesting ideas. Th this study doesn't involve a lot of people. They interviewed 14 workers. And, and so uh, Conchi and Donald are fairly cautious about trying to draw very clear, strong findings. They give some ideas for what creates trust and distrust. Th their examples for distrust are mostly around the sort of dysfunctional distrust, things that create problems that cause people to be suspicious of each other, particularly things that managers can do or supervisors can do to lose the trust of workers and vice versa. So they give this model where there's a sort of functional behaviours and dysfunctional behaviours, and both trust and distrust can lead to uh, very functional behaviours and to dysfunctional behaviours. So th there's a message that we want to encourage the good sort of trust and the good sort of distrust. And they reach this conclusion that the good sort is a kind of happy average. But some of the data and examples they give almost say like there's multiple types of trust and multiple types of distrust. So it's less about the amount and more about the type that you have. So moving on to the second paper, same first author, Dr. Stacey Conchi, now with Calvin Burns as the co-author. And this is a paper specifically about how to create trust. So the oval design is based this time on an experiment, and it's got a fairly traditional experiment structure. You take a bunch of people, you randomly split them into two groups, and you give the two groups different information or change one of the groups somehow. So in this case, the two groups are student nurses who are heading off to do work placements in hospitals. Um, each group was given different information um, and that creates the different conditions that we use for the rest of the experiment. Um, so Dave, I'm going to test your voice acting here and get you to sort of read out what each group was told. So for yeah. the first group. Yeah, this is a great opportunity, Drew, for our listeners to put themselves in the position of research participants. So, so you can picture yourself in a room and, and this, is, this is what you've been told. So, so the first group was told this. Staff and students at a hospital that you've been placed in have raised concerns about violence and aggression from the general public. As a result, the hospital holds monthly sessions with each department where staff, students and management discuss staff and student concerns. At these sessions, the hospital also discusses with staff and students decisions that they have taken as a result of the previous incident reports. The hospital has just announced that it will release quarterly statistics about violence and aggression at the next session. And then the second group was given different information. Staff and students at a hospital that you've been placed in have raised concerns about violence and aggression from the general public. Despite these concerns, which were raised almost one year ago, the hospital has yet to meet with staff and students to discuss their concerns. The hospital has an incident reporting system, but the hospital does not provide staff and students with the feedback when the incident reports are made. The hospital has not released any statistics about violence and, and aggression. Now, you know, obviously, the idea is to make the first group trust the hospital more because it's being more open in its communication, and the second group trust the hospital less. But psychologists are cunning people, and the obvious isn't exactly what they're testing. 
So what they're doing is they're trying to sort of deliberately create this really obvious difference in order to measure some other more subtle things inside it. So the first thing they wanted to look at was how you measure trust. Um, so having created the two different groups, what different answers do the different groups give to questions when you ask them about things like what do they believe about the hospital? How would they act towards the hospital? What would they expect from the hospital? And so they found fairly clearly that trust isn't just one thing. There's two sort of separate things inside it that they called trust beliefs and trust intentions. So you know, the first one is what you think about the hospital. The second one is what you would plan to do as a result of that. And they found that the two don't move in complete lockstep. It's easier to move one than it is to move the other, for example. And the second thing they did was they were testing this interesting property of trust, which is that it's easier to make trust go down than it is to make it go up. And that's fairly consistent across psychology research. So the group with the openly communicating hospital went up a little bit, but the group with the very secretive hospital went down a lot. So, you know, it's interesting that it's not sort of either direction. One goes up a little bit, the other one goes down a lot. But all of that was really just the preliminary to the main thing that they wanted to test in this study. What they really wanted to know is based on whether you trust someone or not, how are you going to interpret what they tell you? And the sort of working hypothesis is that even if it's bad news, you'll take that better from someone that you trust. Whereas if someone is secretive and it's bad news, that's going to be really, really bad. Um, so they gave each person a new piece of information saying either that violence in the hospital had gone up or gone down by 50%. So instead of two groups, we've now got four groups. There's the openly communicating hospital with good results, the openly communicating hospital with bad results, and the secretive hospital with good or bad results. Now, unfortunately, this part of the experiment turned out to be a total bust. You, after carefully setting up these two groups and making sure that one group trusted the hospital more, there was no statistical difference between how the two groups interpreted that new information. So it might seem a bit odd that I picked a study where the results are, well, no, nah, not really. But what I love about the study is its integrity and also that it highlights how difficult and subtle something like trust is to measure. So you've got a really carefully contained lab environment. Um, you've carefully created two groups. The two groups are identical in almost every way. The only difference is that one group is primed to be more trusting. And even under those perfect lab conditions, trust doesn't make a difference in how people treat good or bad news. So Dave, firstly, your thoughts on this sort of almost like a lab experiment for measuring the psychological forces in play? Yeah, so I think, Drew, um, psychology's got a long history of doing these lab-type experiments, and this is a very well-designed um, academic academic research. There's nearly 400 participants, three separate universities, and a really clear research question and hypothesis. Um, very well-designed well conditions, as you mentioned. So it's only possible to do this type of research in such an artificial setting. You, you could never isolate people and variables in this way in the workplace. And so we talked about sort of the opposite end of the extreme of research in last week's podcast um, as, as a two-year workplace study, a very broad two-year workplace study. But the benefit in this case is that we're able to design and test the very specific questions like you've talked about, and we can isolate almost all of the other confounding variables. So yeah, there's a lot of positives in that because we can really get get specific around around proposing and refining theory, 
But the downside is we actually can't really make predictions about what these findings mean in real world organizational settings once all of those variables become reintroduced. So I, you know, I, I believe you know, there's, there's obviously a, an important place for, for both and the best overall approach for important research questions such as this about trust is to have what Stacey Conchi has seemingly done over several years is, is have quite an extensive research program that combines lab experiments or, or artificial academic experiments in these types of settings with uh, broader workplace-based research as well. Yeah, and that, that's, I guess, one of the li limits of this sort of podcast where we talk about just one or two papers is we need to be careful to sort of set the context that this is part of a much larger picture. And we need you as an audience, I guess, to trust us that we're not be cherry picking, that you know, we, we've actually read the stuff around it and we're giving you stuff that fits in appropriately to a bigger picture. Um, that's definitely the case with Stacey Conchie's research. Yeah, to follow on, Drew, before, when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about, we, we to our listeners, we sort of propose research, we propose a research question to each other. And so when Drew sent me the, uh, what is the relationship between trust and safety? I, I actually immediately thought of uh, one of Conchie and Burns' papers, which is another paper, which is which was published only months after the second paper that we're just talking about now, which was a workplace-based study that actually looked at using trusted information sources to communicate about risk. And, and what they did in that study was they asked 131 construction workers how much they trusted information about safety behaviours given by different people. So they picked four high-risk construction hazards and some clear behaviours around those hazards, um, like for example, inspecting slings before they used them for crane lifts or, you know, bending their knees when they lifted and, and things like that. And, you know, my working assumption throughout my career was that the workforce, when being talked to about safety, trusted their workmates the most, their supervisors the second most, and then safety professionals maybe, you know, listened to the least when it when it came to this. But but this, you know, it's only one study and a small study, so we need to be careful with generalizing the results. But what they found here is, is quite clearly that workers actually trusted safety information coming from the safety professionals more than any other group of people in the workplace. And you know, the reason they did that is because they, some of these other dimensions of trust, they, they believe that safety people knew more about safety than the other people. They believe that safety people didn't have other intentions like productivity and profit. And so they then reported that they were more likely to follow safety information that was provided by a safety professional than they were something provided by a manager. And that finding is almost in contrast to quite a lot of things that we promote as safety practitioners in terms of leader-led communication. So it was interesting, Drew, as soon as you, you just mentioned the broader line of research, you know, you, you mentioned two papers from the same author and I'd immediately thought of a third one from the, from the same author as well. Yeah, and I guess that sort of shows that even though every individual paper has limits and we should be careful of drawing strong wrong conclusions from each one, when, when you've got a program of work like this with lots of different studies, each one with a different angle, a different method, different types of participants, a different mix of doing things in the lab or doing things out in the field, together they build a fairly strong, consistent picture. And I really like this particularly in comparison to something like a lot of the safety climate work, where instead of building a consistent picture like this, the different studies don't really build on each other. In fact, something I've noticed recently that 
really annoys me actually is that this conjure work on trust is sort of very delicate and careful and it builds up these really important things like the asymmetry and that trust can be both good or bad. And then you see safety climate papers that cite this exact work and then go straight back to saying, oh, trust is a part of a positive safety climate. And we'll just measure that as, you know, increasing trust means better safety climate equals better safety. Yeah. I think those, that cross-citing of papers and, 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 and losing some of those, those detailed findings in translation happens a lot in, in safety research. And I, I think it's good, you know, while you said earlier, Drew, that we're, we're sort of talking about individual papers, that's also the, the advantage of this podcast where we talk about one or two individual papers where we can really, you know, show the merits of the individual research findings before they get grouped up into larger sort of more, I suppose, freely digestible general communication about topics such as climate and culture. So what does it mean for practice, then, these findings about trust? Okay, so I think there's a few clear things that we can take away. The first one is a little bit of a callback to last week, which is the importance of specificity when we want to do something to improve safety. Trying to do something like improve culture or improve leadership is really just too vague and doesn't give you enough guidance on how to do it, which is why people end up with these very generic measurements and very generic programs. Whereas if you look at something more specific like trust, then you can really work at both what it is, what you don't like about how things are now, and what are the direct actions you need to take in order to improve it. And in this case, focusing on trust lets us think really about what sort of relationships we'd like. What is the ideal relationship between a supervisor and the workers? Clearly, it's not unquestionably they like each other, trust each other, never check up on each other. It's going to be gearing something more towards this very functional trust and distrust where you can check up on each other without getting suspicious about it. And that's not the same as just unquestionably lots of trust or lots of distrust. I think there's also something we can take from the experimental results, um, this asymmetry that keeps showing up. It may seem fairly obvious, but it's something we need to be reminded of, that lots of very carefully trained positive behaviours can get wiped out by a very small number of bad interactions. As far as workers are concerned, you can say the same consistent message for years, but just a couple of examples they think reveal what managers really think and really care about. Um, And those distrust stories perpetuate. Yeah, I've referred to that that third point there you mentioned, Drew, Drew, a number of times before I was familiar with with this research because I'd seen through my through my experience in organisations that, like you said, lots and lots of effort that had gone into into trying to improve safety climate in organisations and safety leadership behaviours through through a whole raft of of programs, then be um, be almost completely eroded by one ill planned organizational change project or, or something like that where the organization went, oh, yep, okay, I was right all along. The organization doesn't care. And, and I think I've, I've said that to a lot of people when they've been thinking about visible leadership programs to, to really think them through because, you know, with the best of intentions, if you make, let's say, bad leadership visible, then you can really negatively impact safety. And sometimes it might be better to leave some people in their offices if you haven't carefully supported and, and trained them in how to how to do those things really well. There's a good quote, um, and I couldn't quite find exactly who it was originally attributed to, but 
sometimes it's best to be thought a fool than to open your mo- open your mouth and remove all doubt. Um, <laughs> and I think that that applies for um, trust and communication and interaction in the workplace. Yeah, that, that, that's a good example. So, so where possible, we like to take the research and think about how you could immediately apply it and take it away. We're not always going to be able to do that every week. But in this case, I think there are some takeaways that can be turned into immediate action. Think about what trust means for you in your workplace at the moment. One thing that a safety practitioner can do really well is find examples of things that are going on and reflect those back to management so they understand what's going on. So, you know, look for examples of open communication. Ask workers who they can rely on to give them a straight answer about what's going on in the business or who gets things fixed, who gets stuff done when it really needs to get done. And think about what functional distrust means as well. You look for examples of where there's a sort of professional people checking each other's work without feeling micromanaged or checked up on. Look at you, who's doing that, how they, they're doing it, and how those positive relationships work. And you share those examples around. Yeah, and I, um, Drew, like I, like I said earlier, I, I think it's important that people really think about the language that they're using when they're talking about trust and distrust in organisations because it will be emotive and, and people will believe that, that trust is always good and the more the better and distrust is always bad and we need to eliminate it. So you can use many other terms for, for concepts around trust like challenge or, or critical reviews or double checks and and work to help your organization understand that there is a difference between dysfunctional distrust, you know, that promotes secrecy and non-compliance. And what we're talking about is functional distrust that promotes an active monitoring, which is helpful for safety. And one example of that language and, and where functional trust, you know, can be used is there's a difference between a safety practitioner saying, I don't trust the safety audit process because the auditors might miss something versus saying, I don't trust the auditors. And this is this playing the playing the ball, not necessarily playing the person. And yeah, I think as safety practitioners, we need to get far better at um, using language well in in our organisational narratives around around safety. Another thing I thought through was about safety training programs. One of the findings in in one of the papers that we spoke to about today concludes that training uh, training initiatives that promote interactive skills that help people communicate openly and honestly you know, will be more effective for safety potentially than technical training. So it'd be worthwhile reviewing your organizational safety training programs just to see whether you, you know, what you do in the space of communication skills, non-technical skills, giving and receiving feedback or, or crew resource management. Yeah, we, we play a lot of lip service to the idea of soft skills training and your communication training um, and leadership development. But I think very often we don't follow through on that. You know, we talk about how important it is, but we don't give people the support that they need to genuinely develop. It's not the sort of thing that you can give someone a one-hour PowerPoint in how to be an open communicator. It requires uh, practices like coaching and mentoring and feedback over time to develop those skills. You're really investing in practical leadership. And I think what we would, I agree, Drew, and I think is an ex- extension of that, what we would advocate or at least what what, I, what I'd advocate I think we would is that the more specific that you can be about almost any topic or any matter in your organization uh, the better so when when people talk to you in your organization about safety culture and safety climate that's an opportunity for you to to ask them to be more specific you know so when when your manager might say we want to improve safety culture the first question should be 
you know, what do you mean by that? You know, what specifically do you think needs to be improved? And, and the more specific you can be, the more, the better chance you've got of actually designing an intervention that will be able to impact the specific thing that you're, you're trying to improve, like trust as opposed to climate. And even like we've said, even trust is potentially too broad looking at the mechanisms, say, interactions between workers and, and supervisors is getting even more specific. Yeah, that, that's one of my favourite questions, both for research and for getting along with other people, is just, what do you mean by that? Tell, tell me more, yeah. is a fantastic way to go from these sort of surface level ideas to things that are more specific and actionable. So great, that's, that's it for this week. Um, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.